We kind of hit the ground running this morning because we have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5 for several weeks now. I think we're getting the flow of thought ingrained into us and kind of understanding what he's talking about. King Jesus, the long-awaited Savior King, is finally on the scene. He's here, and he is delivering his kingdom manifesto. This is what the kingdom will be like. This is what kingdom citizens value. This is how we will look at the law. This is who we're going to be as kingdom citizens. His overall point is that citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, are going to be distinctly holy from everyone else in the world. Citizens of his kingdom, Christians, will stand out and will look different. They'll be distinct, and it's because they'll be holy. How holy? Well, picture the most holy person you can imagine, the most holy person you know. You need to be more holy than they are. Whoever came to mind, you have a grandma that was especially devoted to the Lord and read her Bible hours a day and prayed for all of her grandkids. You have to be holier than she was. Maybe thinking Billy Graham, some celebrity holy person. You have to be more holy than them. He bookends this whole section first in verse 20 of chapter 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These were the seemingly holiest people in that society. And then at the end of this whole section, he says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so as he's laying out this extremely high, the highest it can be standard of holiness for citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he's been giving us these examples, like tossing those magic washcloths into a sink of water. That's the illustration I chose to use early on in this series, and I still think that most of you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But if you've had children or grandchildren somewhat recently, maybe you've come across these. They're shrink-wrapped, vacuum-sealed little tabs. They're tiny. And then when you take the plastic off and you put that little tab into water, the water begins to soak into it and expands, 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 and then it becomes a full washcloth with some kind of cool picture on it. That's what he's been doing with the different laws and standards that the Jewish people were familiar with. He took the little tab of you should not murder people, that they all agreed was a standing law, but then he put it into the water and it expanded and and revealed that the actual standard beneath not murdering people is also not getting angry at people and insulting people, but treating people with kindness and respect. And Jesus said, even if you don't murder the person, if you get inappropriately angry at them and insult them, you are equally guilty and equally liable to hell itself. That's how high these standards are. And then he took adultery, that little tab of adultery, and he put it in the water, and it expanded, expanded, expanded to show that the spirit of the law beneath that law isn't just about committing adultery. It's also about not even looking lustfully at anyone. Committing adultery in your heart is equally damning as adultery. And so the standard is way up there. And then he taught last week that These people who thought that they were holy because they had not committed outright adultery had actually filled their community with adultery through illegitimate divorces, which created and generated a lot of adulterous relationships. And so the people listening to this are starting to get a little uncomfortable, and they're starting to sweat a little bit, and their collars are feeling a little tight, and they're starting to realize he's not talking about those overtly, obviously wretched, sinful people over there. He's talking about me. I am not qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus is continuing to press that point forward in our passage today that Ron just read. Verse 33, here he takes another little tab, another standard that the Jewish people would have all agreed was a good law, a good rule. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So don't swear falsely in God's name. Don't evoke God's name in a promise or an oath knowing that you're going to not follow through with that or knowing that you're lying. I think we would all agree that that's the wrong thing to do. They all would have agreed that that's the wrong thing to do as well. Everybody understood that God did not like that. Uh, If you are going to put your hand on the Bible and testify in a court of law, don't put your hand on that Bible and say, I'm going to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, knowing that you're about to lie evoking God's name by putting your hand on that Bible, knowing you're going to lie. God does not care for that. Uh, don't, um, don't even say, cross my heart. Let's see, what did you used to say when you were a kid? Cross my heart and hope to die. Okay, hang on to that thought for a little bit later in the sermon. Okay, I inserted that a little too early for my train of thought here. So just grab that, just put on a little hook in your brain. Don't casually say, I swear to God. Uh, some, that is a common phrase in our culture, and it worms its way into our vocabulary, and we may even find ourselves casually saying, I swear to God, fill in the blank. Don't do that. Do not take lightly swearing in God's name, because God takes it very seriously. They took it very seriously. They were not, that culture, they were not known for casually saying, I swear to God, if that Wendy's drive through doesn't deliver my food soon, I'm just leaving. Or They did not take that casually. Our culture tends to, but here we're reminded that God's people over time have never taken that sort of thing casually. But now that that little square is in the water and it's starting to expand as we read into verse 34 and we realize it's not just about taking solemn public oaths and vows in God's name that God has in view here. There's more to this. So Jesus redirects like he's done each passage before. He says, but I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't take an oath in God's name, knowing that you're lying, knowing that you're not going to follow through on what you said. Jesus says, what I tell you is don't take any oath at all. Just don't even take an oath. Now, it'll be helpful to understand why he says this to read a different passage in Matthew chapter 23. Here, Jesus is directly attacking the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And this, I believe, is what he has in view when he says the passage that we're reading. This is Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 16. Jesus is just unloading. He's just unleashing on the scribes and Pharisees in this whole chapter. And he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. So 
you can see what was going on in that religious culture is that they were sort of playing these mind games to justify times when it was okay to lie and go back on your word and times when it wasn't. And so if you swear by this aspect of the temple, you need to stand by what you said. But if you swear by this aspect of the temple, then it's okay. And so they would play these games, and if someone caught them in a lie or not following through on what they swore they would do, they might say, well, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. I only swore by the temple itself. Aha! It's like we used to do as a kid where you cross your fingers behind your back when you, you swore to your mom that you don't know who broke the thing. And you cross your fingers thinking that somehow meant that, like, well, you didn't really swear. Some of you are looking at me like you guys never heard of that. Was that not a thing when y'all were kids? Okay, good. Sometimes I don't know if I'm crazy. Their games had to do with the proximity of the thing you're swearing in basis of to God himself. And he goes on, you can read more in, in chapter 23, but I think you get the point. Jesus here is saying everything is in proximity to God. So don't swear by anything. Anything you swear by is as binding as if you swear by God's holy name itself. So if you say, you know, on my, on my mother's, I swear on my mom's dead body that I did not do such and such. Well, that is, you might as well be saying, I swear to God that I not, did not do such and such. If you swear by heaven, it's the throne of God. If you swear by earth, it's his footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Even the hairs on your head, everything is in proximity to God. Any kind of oath, any kind of vow you make is as binding as if you swear it and vow it in the name of God. That's how seriously he takes it. And so again, his audience is sitting here realizing, well, gosh, I didn't murder anybody, but I do get angry and insult people. Guilty. I haven't committed adultery, but I have looked lustfully at women. Guilty. I haven't committed adultery, but I did proceed with an illegitimate divorce and generated adultery in our community. Guilty. Well, I haven't sworn in God's name knowing that I was lying before, but I have sworn by other stuff knowing that I'm lying. Guilty again. Now we get to the bottom line. Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Basically, Jesus is just saying, tell the truth. All of these examples have pointed back to what the original design always was. We were not designed to get angry and insult each other. We were designed to treat each other with love and respect and kindness. And we were not designed to commit adultery or lust after people or get divorced. We were designed to, if we got married, to get married for life in a way that honors God cherishes our spouse. And we were not designed to use our words to mislead people. We were designed to speak truthfully so that we could rely on one another and so that we could be God's people together. Just like he said that certificates of divorce were granted in the Old Testament because of the hardness of our hearts, that's why we have oaths and vows in the first place. Why does one have to put their hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Because we're constantly telling lies or half-truths or somehow distorting the truth to try to shape each other's perception how we want, rather than just being truthful. We live in a dishonest age 
Because humanity itself is dishonest. It's another sign, another symptom of the fall. It's another one of our many problems that Jesus came to solve. If you need to swear or if you need to promise to get someone to believe you, you're condemned already. Because you should be so well known for straightforward honesty that your yes is yes and your no is no. Meredith was reminding me this morning that her grandpa, um, Glennon Balser, that you guys remember, preached a sermon on this at Long's Grove that was, made such an impact on her that she, anytime uh, she hears any of the three of us, Eli, Lillian, or me, say, I promise, she's like, it's just yes or no. You don't need to promise. You need to stand by your word firmly enough that it's yes or no. That's the way it's designed to be. So, we tend to think that we're holy because we don't do the big bad sins, but Jesus here is making it clear that we're all in the same boat. We are all condemned in our sin. We've all broken God's perfect holy standards. So therefore, by the standards he said, we have to have righteousness exceeding the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. We're just not qualified, and no one is. No one is qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven based on their own self-righteousness. When you're confronted with Jesus, if you're going to take him at his word, you're going to be convicted about your sin you're also going to be convicted about your self-righteousness, and you have to let them both down. You have to lay them both aside in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the starting place. There's no benefit in visiting a doctor if you can't admit that you have a disease. There's no benefit in having a teacher if you can't admit that you're ignorant and need to learn. And there's no benefit to association with Jesus Christ, unless you can admit that you don't need a life coach, you don't need some good advice, you don't need a pat on the back, you need rescue, you need a savior. That's what this is. That's what we're doing. We are being saved by King Jesus. It's the starting place to enter the kingdom, and it's the continual process of living in the kingdom. We're continually having to mow down our sense of self-righteousness based in our works and deeds. I have a, a ditch in the front of our house where we moved to uh, that nearly killed me trying to get it cleared off so that my neighbors could see to turn out of their driveways. It, it had gotten so grown up. And out there, you know how hot it's been lately. I went out there. I was just determined I am going to conquer this ditch. And it was just me, my weed eater, and the, um, the uh, what am I talking about, the clippers. Uh, um, and I worked all day. I nearly had a heat stroke out there. I got it all done. And it's been like a week, and i got to do it again. It's already grown back up. Our sense of self-righteousness is always trying to grow back up. And we come together every week so that Jesus can mow it back down, keep us dependent upon him, keep us— we are to be holy and we're to be humble because it's Jesus who's making us holy, not our self-righteousness. And one of his most—the best tools in his toolbox to mow down our sense of self-righteousness is the Lord's Supper which is how we're going to conclude our sermon time now and respond to what we've heard. We receive this uh, little piece of bread and this little cup. It represents Jesus' body broken for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. Because if we don't do this regularly, and and Jesus knew this, if we don't do this regularly, we will start to get full of ourselves and think, well, we really cleaned ourselves up. Man, why are those people so sinful? Why can't they be awesome and 
and righteous like I am, and it just continually reminds us, we bring no righteousness to this equation. We come with our sin, Jesus cleans us up and forgives us. We are living a life bathed in his mercy and grace. The Lord's Supper reminds us of that, keeps us connected to him through faith, keeps us following him as our Lord. And so I would like to close our sermon time in prayer, and then we'll transition to receive the Lord's Supper. And I'm actually going to share another prayer from this, this book. You can tell it's meant a lot to me this week, but I just keep coming across prayers that say it better to the Lord than I've been able to say it. And so I'm going to let this be our closing prayer of our sermon time. If you'll bow with me. Father, will you destroy in us every lofty thought, break our pride to pieces, and scatter it to the winds? Annihilate each clinging shred of self-righteousness. Implant in us true lowliness of spirit. Open in us a fount of penitential tears. Break us, then bind us up. And then will our hearts be a prepared dwelling place for you. Then the Father can take up his abode in us. Then can the blessed Jesus come with healing in his touch. Then can the Holy Spirit descend in sanctifying grace. In Jesus' name, amen.